The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to America's Web Radio. You're listening to Ron Bachman, and the program is Healthcare Insight, where we take a look at the health of the United States, domestic policy, foreign policy, whatever is happening in Washington, D.C., and around the country and around the world, we try to take a look at the issues. And today, we want to take a look at what I think is probably the number one threat to democracy, to the United States, to our freedoms, to our liberties. And that threat is coming from within. It is all about the weaponization of our own governmental institutions, the FBI, the CIA, the DOG, the Homeland Security, the intelligence agency, all of that deep state that we used to talk about under the Trump administration has gained so much power, it is now beginning to control what is being allowed to be discussed, what is allowed to be debated. We are not having a good political discourse on our differences and trying to convince one another of the right direction. It is my way or the highway, given the governmental weaponizing of these institutions. So today, I want to turn to a committee run by Jim Jordan that is looking into this whole issue. And in the normal course of events, the Republicans get five minutes to talk and the Democrats get five minutes to talk and ask questions. And the um, witnesses at the beginning are given five minutes each. Now, I've listened to uh, the debates uh, in this committee. And quite honestly, there's no reason to show or listen to the Democratic side at this point because they are not trying to get into the actual issues or find solutions to the social media dominance of our discourse in this country, the limitations, the restrictions that can be put on, the canceling, the removal of individuals from platforms, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, Google, whatever it is, that's going on. And it would be great to have a bipartisan approach to understanding the issues and the problems and the threats. But the Democrats on the committee clearly have no interest in that. And I'll show some examples on their side of how all they're trying to do is get into discussion of personal destruction of any witness that comes up, any whistleblower, any insider, anybody with understanding of what's going on behind the scenes And it's being exposed through what some call the Twitter files, where Elon Musk, having bought Twitter, has been releasing a lot of the background dialogue and interactions between Twitter executives and Twitter staff and the interactions between the federal government agencies that I just mentioned and a request for Twitter to take limiting action on anybody who has an opinion or a thought that they disagree with. And we're going to get into the whole idea of censorship, of misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation. Those are terms now that are being used frequently on the inside to limit free speech by these private companies. And some say, well, they're private companies. They can do whatever they want. Well, yes, but we're going to get into a discussion of how the government has sort of become an agent uh, requesting um, intimidating these companies into doing what the federal government agencies can't do directly since it'd be illegal, unconstitutional for the federal government to take these actions. 
But if they can coerce private companies to take actions that they would like to take as a federal government agency, uh, that is stepping into the shoes of that private company and become an agent. And that also uh, is highly unconstitutional. So I want to start off with some of the witnesses presenting what they have seen, what they know about. And the first one is a Mr. Baker, who is a retired uh, FBI agent who stayed in touch, who knows the leadership in the FBI, and he is going to raise a big red flag about what he knows and what he saw uh, during the last few years with the limitations of what's being put on free speech. So let's turn to Mr. Baker, and if you'll give us uh, your presentation and your ideas on what's happening behind the scenes in these um, social media companies. Americans have lost faith in the Federal Bureau of Investigation, an institution they once regarded as the world's greatest law enforcement agency. I spent 33 years in the FBI and have continued to be closely engaged with the Bureau since my retirement. I am deeply troubled by this loss of faith, not only because of the challenge and danger it presents to our nation, but personally, it breaks my heart. Specific lapses will be looked into by this panel. But the big issue is, why did they happen? What changed? And what should be done? Culture is where it starts. This widespread deleterious behavior of the past several years describes a culture, not just the work of a few bad apples. Robert Mueller, when he was the FBI director, set out deliberately to change the culture of the FBI from a law enforcement agency to an intelligence-driven agency. That had bad and unintended consequences. Let me interrupt Mr. Baker's presentation for one second for a discussion with our audience out there. He just made a very important point that is lost, I think, with the American public, with the media, trying to expose the problems of what's going on with the FBI. He just said that Robert Mueller, previous director of the FBI, changed the direction and the mission of the FBI from a law enforcement agency, which is what most of us still think of it as, but that's not the case anymore. He changed it from a law enforcement agency to an intelligence driven agency, that that's its mission, is gathering intelligence, not providing law enforcement as the chief law enforcement officer in the country, we think of as sort of the, the federal level of our local police. That's not the case anymore. And tell us why, Mr. Baker, that was so important. What's the effect, the unintended consequences of that? And the difference is this. In law enforcement, you spend every day, consciously or unconsciously, waiting for that day to come when you're going to raise your right hand before a judge or before a jury and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's quite different than an intelligence agency that operates through deceit and deception, and their end product is an estimate. Some would call it a best guess. Guesses aren't allowed in the courtroom. Because the abuses of an intelligence-driven FBI threaten the liberty of those on the left as well as those on the right. Well, Mr. Baker, you've been around the FBI for a long time as a member of the FBI, as an intelligence officer. 
you've seen these changes and you're clearly identifying the number one issue of changing from a law enforcement to an intelligence-driven uh, uh, mission by the FBI. So what happened and how did this uh, come about? Many of us who are sort of the political junkies and a little bit of the inside view of watching this understand something called FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, where we were going to be looking, using the FBI tools, looking at foreign actors, not domestic actors, but foreign actors. How did that play and how did that change as the FBI became more of an intelligence gathering uh, agency? FISA suspends the Constitution. For its first decades, the Foreign Intelligence Act was used, as its name implies, to surveil foreign agents resident in this country. Over the past few years, when shenanigans were discovered in the Bureau, by the Bureau, the miscredence was shown the door. Director Ray and other FBI leaders, their theme is the bad apples are no longer with us. With the tw Twitter revelations, there is not even that usual half apology, but a bold-faced denial that nothing is wrong. The First Amendment guarantees free speech. The FBI, by urging Twitter to censor speech, which it could not itself do, was engaging in a perversion, a perversion of the First Amendment. The United States now may be cursed to have a domestic intelligence agency with police powers. Well, Mr. Baker certainly lays out the uh, number one issue, and that's the change in the atmosphere in the mission of the FBI from law enforcement to intelligence agency. And that totally changes the way they approach the business, the way they train uh, their staff and their on-the-ground special agents, which used to, again, be considered to be the best law enforcement in the world, but that is no longer the case. That is the myth, if you will, that we still retain because that's what we still think of it as, but that's not what the situation is. Well, let's turn to a legal opinion from Professor uh, Jonathan Turley. Um, he's going to describe in his presentation more about this idea that the FBI engages and and, and and coerces private industry to do things that the federal government cannot otherwise do. So, Mr. Turley, uh, give us the, the legal background and your interpretation of this relationship between government agencies and social media platforms. There might be need for legislation to limit the role of the FBI and other agencies in their relationship with social media companies. There are two different aspects to that analysis. One is that we do have direct action shown in the Twitter files by government employees. So we don't have to get into what I spend most of my time on, which is agency theory under the First Amendment. We know that there were dozens of federal employees who tabbed or targeted particular posts and posters for possible elimination and uh, suspension. Now, we can question whether that was a directive or a partnership or a coordination, but there was direct government conduct. So the question is, do you want your government in that business? What's interesting about the Twitter files is that they establish what could be viewed as an agency. So at what point does a private party become an agent of the government? Two, three things that are established. One, this may be the largest censorship system in the history of our country. Twitter alone reaches 450 million people. They're 15th on social media. 
It is a censorship system. The ACLU has made clear that censorship can be both in government or private form, and it certainly can be in a government and private uh, uh, um, type of coordination. Second, uh, this is beyond what agencies usually do. This was not the FBI responding to criticism of the FBI. It was generally policing this thing called disinformation. And eventually they tagged things like jokes. They tagged just a ridiculous scope of information that they believed could be removed. And then third, I, what we have here on these, uh, in terms of, of what the government's doing is what we've seen before. Even if you assume that this does not create an agency relationship, it's wrong. It's wrong. For the government to be in the business of silencing citizens, it's wrong. We saw it during the McCarthy period, where the government was behind the blacklisting of individuals. We said it was wrong. It was wrong then. It's wrong now. We have everything at stake when you have the government involved in censorship. Wow, what powerful voices of raising a red flag about what's happening with our government in that deep state, far more dangerous than maybe anybody listening into the program today um, has fully comprehended. I want to continue with this discussion and exposing what's going on in our federal government agencies, the FBI, CIA, and other intelligence agencies that are destroying the very fabric of our country and the civil liberties that we enjoy, of the propaganda machine that's going on around disinformation, misinformation, and malinformation, as they call it. So stay tuned. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back with more of this idea. In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients, dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax-deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you. Veteran-owned, America's Web Radio would like to thank all of our incredible patrons. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. If you are not already a patron, you can help us continue to produce some of the most informative and entertaining shows on the Internet by becoming a patron. Patrons of America's Web Radio are the first to receive information about new shows and links to the latest podcast episodes. Join now and receive a free gift while supplies last. For more information and to join our family, please visit www.patreon.com slash America's Web Radio. If you have questions, contact us at gm at americaswebradio.com. And as always, thank you for listening. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. Today we are talking about what I think is one of the greatest dangers to our individual rights, our our liberties in this country, and the freedoms that we face. In fact, the overall democracy that we live in, and I'm not exaggerating this because our deep state 
has taken on new powers with the combination of our FBI, CIA, and all our intelligence agencies working with private companies to do what no government agency uh, could previously do under our entire history, and that is work with these companies to suppress free speech ideas. Whether they're truthful or not, they're still suppressing all those things that we hold dear that we could get into an honest debate, whether it's about politics or it's about healthcare or it's about transportation or it's about uh, foreign policy, whatever it is. We can't have a government agency that is restricting the free speech of individuals, the opportunity for the opposition party, the opposition ideas, the opposition thoughts to actually be heard in this country. So I want to go to a whistleblower, a Ms. Parker, who was an FBI agent, who quit the FBI agent because the FBI was being politicized in ways that she never expected that had never happened in her long uh, career. But she's now trying to expose something for the good of the country to get back uh, to where we should be, that the FBI is a law enforcement agency, not an intelligence-driven organization that is spying on American citizens. So, Ms. Parker, tell us your story and what happened and how things changed during your tenure there. Over the course of my 12-plus years, the FBI's trajectory has transformed. On Bureau, the papers, the Bureau's mission it remained the same, but its priorities and governing principles shifted dramatically. The FBI became politically weaponized, starting from the top in Washington and trickling down to the field offices. Although FBI employees have their First Amendment rights, they are not at the liberty to allow their personal political views or preferences to determine their course of action or inaction in any investigation. Lady Justice must remain blind. Those that do not uphold these responsibilities cause a negative ripple effect throughout the agency in the field. It's as if there became two FBI's. Americans see this, and it is destroying the Bureau's credibility, causing Americans to lose faith in the agency and therefore the hardworking and highly ethical agents who still do the heavy lifting and pursue noble cases. There has also been a shift in recruiting practices, a lowering of the eligibility requirements, which is negatively impacting the agency's performance. And all this adds up to a loss of trust in the FBI by many Americans and low morale among many FBI employees. For many, becoming the special agent was their calling in life, but now it's merely a very dangerous and high-risk job with minimal contentment. Well, Ms. Baker, you make the point that from the field standpoint, from the agents in the field, you see and experience what the previous uh, guests on this program have have voiced, that there was a significant change with Robert Mueller changing from a um, law enforcement agency into an intelligence agency. So uh, from somebody at the street level, like you were experiencing working with real crimes, what is the impact on the politicization, as you described it, of the FBI on local agents? Wary of consequences that come with voicing their displeasure, these agents keep their heads low. They work hard and they stay off the radar and they count down the days until they can collect their well-deserved pensions. For me, distancing myself from egregious mistakes, immoral behavior, politically charged actions taken by a small but destructive few FBI employees became exhausting. Although I was always treated with the highest level of respect in the Miami division, I no longer felt that I was the type of agent that the FBI valued. I held out as long as I could, hoping things would improve, but finally I knew it was time to go. So less than four months ago, of my own volition, I made the difficult decision and quietly walked away from the FBI with an exemplary and spotless record. 
Well, Ms. Baker, um, a lot of people are suspicious of whistleblowers. Yes, they can come forward and give them protection, and uh, they can be a real good insight uh, to what's happening and dangers and evils and problems and issues that need to be corrected, whether it's governmental agencies or private agencies. But why why'd you step, Why are you stepping forward now? What is the issue you know, so that people don't um, uh, think you have an axe to grind, that they can believe what you're saying as reinforcement for what others are testifying about? Tell us uh, one of the reasons you decided to testify before Congress about this um, uh, changing in the FBI as you saw it from the street level. When I was invited to participate in this hearing, my initial reaction was to decline their request, as there may be others more capable who would do a much better job than me. And why would I want to subject myself to the stress of testifying, putting a target on my back, and likely facing public scrutiny? I have been given the opportunity to speak up on behalf of numerous current and former Bureau employees who feel similarly, but they do not have a voice. I am here to stand for the truth based on my experience at the FBI. In all humility, I hope to make an impact in creating a stronger agency, which is what Americans deserve. Now, just to summarize what the witnesses, if you will, before this um, committee in the House of Representatives on the weaponization of government have told us so far, that the first individual was Mr. Baker, who was an ex-FBI executive and uh, participated in law enforcement over many, many years. And he appropriately, I think, identified the core issue, and that is uh, somewhere along the way, and he claims under um, FBI um, uh, leader uh, Mueller, uh, the head of the FBI many years ago, that he changed the FBI's mission from law enforcement to an intelligence agency driven by gathering information as opposed to going after the bad guys, after the criminals, if you will. Jonathan Turley uh, presented the legal uh, discussion that said uh, that there is an, what he called agency, a legal term saying the government uh, can't do through an agency relationship with a private company what they can't do as a government entity. And that's what was happening with the social media companies that uh, while there could be some sort of um, deniability, if you will, by the agencies, that they didn't do anything in terms of uh, restricting information or censorship. In fact, they were a large government agency with the power to enforce and investigate and to coerce, to intimidate uh, private companies into doing what they might say they only suggested, but then they would provide a list of individuals and topics that ought to be removed from social media so that their their voice is squelched, that the censorship of individuals is not just about, say, the FBI and sort of clarifying the record if somebody makes a claim on social media that's inaccurate or is under challenge uh, to the FBI. It wasn't just responses to them, but it was more what the third person, Miss Parker, said, that this is a politicization of the FBI. They were going after people and thoughts and ideas and, and commentary that was not just uh, something the FBI needed to clarify, but they were... Um, the FBI was going after people for their political views and trying to shut them down. So now I'd like to sort of turn the tables for our audience a little bit and 
move away from the witness testimonies to the Republican representatives on this uh, panel asking questions and making statements about what they just heard and additional information that they have researched that they wanted to get in front of this committee for the official record. So the first person I want to present here in this segment is Representative Stefanik from New York. And listen to her presentation and summary and additional commentary on what she just heard. So, Ms. Stefanik, give us some of your thoughts and observations of what the panel has been talking about. Mr. Turley, I want to start with you. The Twitter files laid bare for the American people what you correctly call unconstitutional, quote, censorship by surrogate. Matt Taibbi writes, quote, Twitter's contact with the FBI was constant and pervasive as if it were a subsidiary. Do you agree with that assessment? I do. What we know on the record so far shows a relationship that goes beyond uh, this sort of informal uh, um, exchange of ideas. Listen to uh, Representative Stefani uh, talk about additional information insights that I think the panelists will agree that this is not something just happened last year. This has been going on for a long time. And in fact, it has been affecting our election. We talk about free and fair elections. Well, the Democrats have been talking about in 2016, Trump was uh, not properly elected or was illegally uh, elected as president because of Russian intervention. Well, let's hear about what happened in 2020, which this cancer, uh, if it existed in 2016 at a low level of the Russians giving $100,000 to social media to try to influence American votes, that in fact by 2020, four years later, uh, the deep state headed in for Donald Trump, and they went much, much further by 2020 with their experiences and their knowledge of what they were able to do in 2016. Leading up to the 2020 election, Twitter had weekly meetings with not just the FBI, with DOJ, with DHS, with DNI, to conduct this unconstitutional censorship by surrogate. We know that because the Twitter files, correct? Correct. And it was not just meetings, not just censorship of stories like the Hunter Biden laptop story. We also now know that the FBI paid Twitter over $3.4 million of taxpayer taxpayer funds to censor these stories before the 2020 election. Is that correct? Uh, That money was paid. Twitter confirmed that. And this, the Twitter files are just the tip of the iceberg because there's so much more. There was a corrupt revolving door at the highest levels between the FBI and Twitter, according to the Twitter files, that there were so many FBI officials who then went to work at Twitter that that created their own Slack channel and crib sheet for onboarding. The Twitter files confirmed that, correct? Correct. So, audience, I think you can now see that not only was there this interaction of the FBI in particular that we're focusing on at the moment, the interaction between the FBI's requests, intimidations, demands, um, uh, suggestions that certain individuals and topics be censored by Twitter, but that there is this revolving door of hiring people from the FBI, people who had an agenda, who were politicized within the FBI, that then take that political view that far left, typically, political view, and we're installing that into the F, into the Twitter uh, culture, 
and taking suggestions, recommendations, lists of who to censor, uh, there was a direct connection. So it was easy for the existing FBI to talk to the former FBI agents at Twitter. And in fact, they set up their own communication channel so that it wasn't just the FBI calling an executive at Twitter, but they were calling an ex-FBI employee at Twitter, and they weren't even going through the normal Twitter files or communication or phone calls or emails or text. They set up their own process. Talk about the government corrupting a, a willing private company and using those powers against the American people. Well, I want to take a quick commercial break again. I want to come back with this kind of exposure of the dangers of what's really going on behind the scenes, that we're pulling back the curtain and finding the, the crazy wizard behind there that is trying to destroy this country. So stay tuned, and we'll be right back. If you love classic cars, you're going to want to listen to The Classic Car Show with Tom Cox and Richard Lentinello on America's Web Radio. Live every Saturday at 9 a.m. Eastern at americaswebradio.com or on demand on your favorite podcast app. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. I am back. Let's talk Venezuelan with Josie Cruz and friends. Every Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. only on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to this third segment of Healthcare Insight on America's Web Radio. I want to continue with this discussion because it is so important. I hope our audience is really listening and paying attention to what is happening in our country that we're not fully aware of. You know, it is the, um, it is that uh, frog in the pot that's boiling that doesn't recognize what's happening when it has such an incremental impact until it's, it's far too late. I want to go to another Republican representative, a female representative, on the Republican side, who, uh, again, asks um, uh, Jonathan Turley about the First Amendment rights and how the uh, FBI in his Twitter relationship is unconstitutional and why it's unconstitutional and what his actions have been that make it unconstitutional. So let me turn it over again uh, to the um, member of this uh, subcommittee on the weaponization of the uh, U.S. government and the FBI in particular. They are either investigating Americans based upon their constitutionally protected rights or they are flagging lawful action to which they have political objection. In some of your recent writings, you have identified two very important points from the revelation of the FBI-Twitter relationship. First, that this relationship is a First Amendment violation as it constitutes censorship by surrogate or proxy. And second... You also are concerned that you don't know what is more menacing, the role the FBI played in Twitter's censorship program or its response to the disclosure of that role. The Constitution is a limited governance document. 
The First Amendment identified our God-given right to speak freely and imposes restraint that the government shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. Mr. Turley, can you explain the implications of the government relying on private industry to circumvent the First Amendment? Thank you for that question. The Supreme Court and lower courts have spent a great deal of time trying to define when a relationship with a private party uh, can cross over to a type of agency relationship. In these Twitter files, there's a very disturbing picture that emerges. You have regular meetings between the FBI and Twitter. They even offer to give clearances to Twitter officials. You have complaints among Twitter employees uh, that this is overwhelming in terms of the number. And what you really see is how insatiable censorship becomes, mm-hmm. that eventually they were doing what appeared to be word searches and just sending all of these postings in for possible uh, action by, by Twitter. And that included things like jokes and other things that anyone looking at it would realize that this is not a, a, a nefarious Russian operation. So when we talk about surrogate censorship, we're talking about one of the most most serious threats against free speech. You know, people always say, well, you know, the First Amendment only applies to the government. The First Amendment is not synonymous with free speech. It deals with one problem of free speech. What we're talking about with surrogate censorship is a much greater problem for those of us who value free speech as a defining right of this country. Well, I hope our audience is now understanding the breadth and extent of this surrogate censorship that's going on in this country. Uh, Behind the scenes, most of us aren't affected by it because we live our normal lives and go on. But those who speak for us that are elected officials or people that we support in one way, shape, or form as an activist, if you're on the conservative side, you're being shut down by this weaponization of our bureaucracy, which we thought was impartial, but it's now not. It has become very political, the politicalization of the FBI, the CIA, the Intelligence Committee, working against our own best interests of our country's founding principles of freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom for parents to speak out at board meetings, uh, freedom to have an alternative thought, freedom to be wrong in some ways, but at least being able to speak out and let the dynamics of the conversation find out whether and where the truth might lie and where the gray areas are. But we can't have those conversations if people are being shut down that would otherwise speak for us at a national level or on some forum uh, like a social media platform. So let's turn now to another member of this panel, um, Representative Johnson from Louisiana. He's got some very interesting points about that this was not just involving the FBI, but was much broader, and many, many of our government agencies are involved. So let's listen to the commentary and questioning of Representative uh, Johnson. What we're concerned about in the scope of this committee is the fear of threats to the American citizens. The reason we use the term weaponization is because it is appropriate. We have so many examples of that across so many federal agencies that were designed to serve and protect the American people and have been used in recent years against them. I just want to focus on one that's been mentioned this morning because the timeline is important. Uh, The school board's issue. On June 22, 2021, Loudoun County parent Scott Smith spoke out at his local school board meeting and he was arrested. On September 29th, 
Citing Mr. Smith's arrest as an example, the National School Boards Association sent a letter to the Biden administration requesting federal law enforcement involvement in local school board disputes. Now, here's what's really important. We learn later that the White House helped the NSBA draft that letter to itself. On October 4th, Attorney General Merrick Garland issued the now infamous memo directing federal law enforcement to mobilize against the parents of school children who protest at their local school board meetings. He turned the FBI, the U.S. Attorney's offices, the full weight of the Federal Department of Justice against the very citizens they were sworn to defend and protect. On October 12th, we learned that the Loudoun County parent, Scott Smith's daughter, was actually sexually assaulted at her, at her school and that the school board covered it up. And that was the reason why that dad showed up to protest. Nine days later, October 21st, happened to be the day previously scheduled for Attorney General Merrick Garland himself to appear before our House Judiciary Committee. In that hearing, as my colleagues will remember, he was forced to acknowledge before our committee that the NSBA letter was the basis of his memo targeting concerned parents. But he refused to acknowledge the obvious chilling effect that memo involving the full weight of the federal law enforcement apparatus would have on parents' protected First Amendment speech. The very next day, on October 22nd, after much public outcry, the NSBA retracted and publicly apologized for its letter labeling concerned parents like Scott Smith as, quote, domestic terrorists. In the following weeks, over 20 different state school board associations severed their ties with the National School Boards Association. As this example and so many others clearly show, key agencies have indeed been weaponized. We're informed even still today that that memo has not been retracted by the Attorney General. So we now know that there were many agencies, not just the FBI, the DOJ and many others that were involved in this sort of political power play, if you will, centralizing power and utilizing it in Washington, D.C. I want to turn next to um, um, Matt Gates, representative from Florida, and I think he's going to lay out, again, the problem with the centralization and the power-hungry Washington, D.C. bureaucrats that the Steve State has has absorbed into its its realm and is exerting its own power and influence in ways that was never intended, uh, especially for areas like the FBA, F, F, uh, FBI. So um, let's hear from um, Representative Gates and his take on the source of how everything got corrupted. Come not to trash the FBI, but to rescue the FBI from political capture. And it seems as though that political capture was really enhanced when Robert Mueller took a lot of the authority and power away from the field offices all over our country and centralized that power. And it seems as though those abuses become more acute the greater they have a geographic proximity to Washington, D.C. So, audience, I want to go to the next um, representative asking questions of the witnesses on this uh, uh, committee panel on uh, weaponization of, uh, of the U.S. government. And that's um, Representative Daryl Issa from California. Uh, I think he's got some pretty good points about that this is not new. It's been going on uh, from past administrations even for many years. But it's just gotten more intense and more widespread, mainly because I guess there's a, a level of confidence and ability to sort of get through uh, without uh, people knowing what's really going on. And there's a level of power accumulation that can be intoxicating to these uh, governmental agencies. So let's listen to uh, Daryl Isis for a second. 
in a sense, the weaponization of DOJ isn't new, is it? It, it predates this administration and even the previous one. No, that's true. Some of the darkest chapters in our history have come from the Department of Justice losing that independence and objective uh, uh, element that they pride themselves on. And that goes back to the Palmer raids and even before then. Uh, and whenever the DOJ and the FBI has has lost its way in that sense, it has come at a great cost to the country as well as the Department. Well, and speaking of lost their way, back in 2010-2012 with the IRS's targeting of conservative groups uh, headed by Lois Lerner, that certainly limited the free speech of those organizations when they were denied their uh, their ability to hold themselves as not-for-profits, correct? That had serious free speech implications. So when we look at the weaponization of government, we should not limit it to uh, three-letter words uh, over at DOJ, but in fact... We need to look at at government broadly and how it might impinge free speech or our rights to simply have our liberties. Uh, Let me interrupt um, Representative Issa uh, here and uh, point out the next area I think that's so important for our audience to uh, understand. He's going to talk about now, I think, um, the representation of people saying, well, Twitter is a private company. They can do whatever they want. And he's going to ask um, uh, Jonathan Turley about this particular issue so that there's clarity on what the government can do, what private companies can do, and where that intersection becomes very problematic. A lot of people are talking about how Twitter's a private company, Facebook's a private company. They're all private companies. Isn't it fair to say that from a standpoint of statutory and constitutional history, our government has clearly looked at entities which convey free speech, newspapers, radio, television, and has limited the concentration of power and the concentration of ownership in order to maintain, although private, an ability for all or at least most uh, free speech to find an avenue. Isn't that the history that we're also going to have to look at when it's concentrated in just a few companies? It is. And, you know, the fact is that much of our political dialogue now takes a place on, on social media, which has replaced even telephones as a common form of communication. And that's why it is true that private companies can limit speech. But you have to keep in mind these are communicative companies. These are closer to the AT&T than they are Starbucks. And that raises a serious question in terms of not just looking at the government aspect of coordinating and targeting citizens for possible censorship, but the control of these companies over speech. And I think the people that people that sort of dismiss that um, are really losing the fact that this is now much of what is the marketplace of ideas. You know, the marketplace of ideas is now a digital marketplace, and it's controlled by these companies. So, audience, I don't know how it can be any more clear from these witnesses and the explanatory um, uh, questioning and comments of those witnesses in this uh, weaponization of the U.S. government that's going on. Um, Could it be any more different than uh, communist China limiting free speech and saying what can and cannot be said on their websites to their population to the Russians that we've known for uh, decades that would – uh, blackout people that are even in photographs and, and minimize the uh, the influence or the power of the comments or the questioning that goes on within the uh, communist regimes, whether it's in, in China or Russia or North Korea or Iran or any other place. We are now 
doing the same things to our own population that we have complained about for years in other countries not having uh, free speech. So stay with me. I want to take another quick commercial break, and we'll come back and even hear some of the Democratic comments about these witnesses and their expertise. Hey, folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday, 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember, folks, I'm not angry. I'm just right. And you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor show, only right here on America's Web Radio. Veteran-owned, America's Web Radio would like to thank all of our incredible patrons. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. If you are not already a patron, you can help us continue to produce some of the most informative and entertaining shows on the Internet by becoming a patron. Patrons of America's Web Radio are the first to receive information about new shows and links to the latest podcast episodes. Join now and receive a free gift while supplies last. For more information and to join our family, please visit www.patreon.com slash America's Web Radio. If you have questions, contact us at gm at americaswebradio.com. And as always, thank you for listening. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the americasbroadcastnetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the final segment of this week's program of Healthcare Insight on America's Web Radio. I want to turn to another representative, a representative Massey from Ohio, who will talk to us about the uh, FISA or the foreign uh, intelligence surveillance system that's been at the heart of a lot of this. It's been the heart of abuses in the Trump administration against many of the, uh, uh, the Trump um, uh, cabinet members and supporters that they used something that was intended for foreign surveillance against Americans. And the way that works just for our audience is if there's some foreign entity in the United States uh, the FISA legislation, which basically ignores the Constitution, and justifiably so, under the premise that they are going to be looking at and studying foreign actors, foreign spies in the United States that should not have the protections of the Constitution. And only if there are people they're talking to that are Americans, that is a side issue, an incidental issue, should they be Included all. In fact, the Americans' name are not supposed to be included in any kind of disclosure. But in fact, what we will see here under this questioning and exposure of FISA, which is still the law, but it's got to be reinstated, but it's been abused so much by the Department of Justice that there's going to be significant changes because they're using the FISA uh, laws to circumvent the Constitution for those Americans that they want to target. So what you're going to see them doing is not just targeting the the foreigners who are here and then the incidental contact they might have with Americans that those foreigners are calling or being called uh, by the Americans to get some information or have a discussion. They are using the FISA to target Americans and then finding out where they might have a call or a discussion with a foreign entity. So it's not the foreign entity that is really being, being, uh, targeted or, or recorded or analyzed. It is subverting FISA to actually go after the American who might otherwise just have an incidental contact. So let's listen to, um, Representative Massey as he describes the abuses of the, um, FISA 
and also of the um, the witness, um, Mr. Baker, on how he understands it's changed the way the Department of Justice and particularly the FBI actually utilizes the new FISA law. I want to talk about the FISA program, particularly 702 part of it, parts of it that we are going to reexamine and reauthorize potentially. Uh, on the surface of it, it's, it sounds like a, a, a practical legal concept that you would collect information on foreign targets who don't have constitutional rights, and you might incidentally collect information that pertains to uh, U.S. citizens who do have constitutional rights. But because it was collected incidentally uh, and not in pursuit of that U.S. person, oh, we'll go look at this data, you know, we'll, we'll put some policies and procedures, but the Constitution does not apply here because it was incidentally collected. Well, if the incidental collection were small enough, that that might be a valid concept. The problem is we've collected millions of exabytes of data. We're, when you're When what you're collecting incidentally becomes the entire universe, I think you might need a warrant to go look at that information. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when the number of searches that is done on U.S. persons by the FBI, I'm not talking about CIA, NSA. We know in 2020 it was over a million searches into this phishing, into this database where you don't need a warrant. And then in 2021 it went from a million to over three million searches. Our audience, I want you to listen to this segment very closely it is absolutely critical that we understand you may not be one of those 3 million people that the uh, IRS has targeted, but that's a very large number of people who should have only been considered as incidental contacts while we were investigating or monitoring foreign actors on our soil. But there's something called reverse targeting that is so critical for you to understand and to oppose the FISA law as it exists and understand as we go through a redesign of FISA, because some of it is absolutely necessary to monitor what's going on in this country. But the deep state, as we've called it, has been abusing those laws that are targeted towards foreign actors, and they have turned it on its head and targeted uh, U.S. citizens. So I want you to listen to this very carefully because it shows how things can get totally out of hand when you have big government and you have this desire for centralizing power and an administration that has been elected, but an administration nevertheless that has decided that they're going to weaponize these instruments of the executive branch. Mr. Bake, can you tell us what reverse targeting is? And yes. why we need, why we might want to be concerned about that. Yes, um, and, and it's not well understood, but in, in a nutshell, here it is. The CIA and the NSA are forbidden to target Americans, as you know. They often, and, and as you said, the numbers are in vast numbers where they pick up Americans most of the time just by incidental collection, and the Americans are not really doing anything wrong. If they pick up information that an American is breaking the law or is somehow a threat to national security, those other agencies, the CIA and the NSA, are supposed to provide that information to the FBI for appropriate action. 
and, and action can't be taken on it. But in reverse targeting, which John Brennan, during the Russian collusion thing, acknowledged they were doing, they would target a foreign person who was close to an American they were really interested in. And then when they picked up that information on the Americans, aha, we got it in incidental connect collection, which that was all phony and false. It wasn't incidental collection at all. Let me interrupt here and go directly to um, uh, Jonathan Turley, the lawyer on the uh, witness uh, panel. Uh, Section 230 is a part of the FISA law that is being abused that allows this um, monitoring of foreign uh, entities it allows people to go to the FISA court or within the DOJ or the CIA, but it is what is being abused. So the question to uh, Jonathan Turley is, does the use of that give the FBI, the CIA, the DOJ sort of a comfort level that they really shouldn't have because they've sort of gotten away with it over a period of time? Well, I do think that Section 230 is becoming increasingly untenable. It was it was really designed on the premise that these social media companies and other platforms uh, were not in an editing function; that they were simply a forum, a publisher. That's clearly not the case. I mean, we we obviously have an extensive censorship system here uh, that is in place, and so the premise of 230, I think, has largely been discarded. But the implications of what has been created uh, cannot be really overstated, uh, we're talking about a censorship system that affects billions of people, and we also have a confirmation in the Twitter files of the United States government pinpointing people who should be censored or suspended. That should trouble people regardless of your party affiliation, whether you want the government in that business. And I think that's worthy of a debate. You know, the next series of comments and observations from uh, Representative Bishop is very insightful, at least to me, because government does have an oversight function and has had heads of these social media companies, including Twitter, uh, in front of them where they were asking questions about how they operated and what their rules and regulations were for um, content um, suppression or modification. But in addition, the oversight committee in Congress has also been looking at the DOJ, the uh, CIA, uh, all of the governmental entities that are now being disclosed through the release of the Twitter files. But those agencies never disclosed to Congress, in fact, what they were doing or how close their relationships were with these social media companies and how they were uh, preventing uh, free speech or squelching free speech or putting indications with these companies to declassify, deplatform these committees. So you can see from this next line of questioning how easy it is for government to do things, not only behind what citizens might be aware of, but what even Congress with its oversight functions would be told or be made aware of. So let's listen to um, Representative Bishop. There is a body of evidence. It is not accusations. It is evidence that we would not have, but for the voluntary, maybe extraordinarily unlikely, voluntary act of a very wealthy American who had the will and interest to purchase that company and then disclose what its files hold. 
Here's what's notable. We didn't get any information about what the FBI and the CIA and the ODNI and GEC and all these other agencies are engaged in from those agencies. The American people wouldn't know but for Elon Musk's disclosures and the independent journalists. Yet I want our audience to clearly and carefully listen to the next segment that Representative Bishop brings up that um, is sort of new to me in thinking about it, that if we're talking about protecting our First Amendment rights, um, how does the uh, restrictions, the rules, the guidelines that the social media companies use to what's allowed on their so-called public websites, um, how do those rules and regulations that they utilize, how does that compare to uh, the Constitution and our First Amendment? That these social media platforms uh, have content moderation policies that are narrower than the First Amendment. They take down speech as a matter of practice that the First Amendment would protect if it were a government. In fact, a lot of people say, well, they can do that. They're private businesses. The question that gets at me is this. How could the FBI, which is sworn to protect the Constitution, ever justify using intense application of its resources, agents, etc., to urge social media platforms to use those standards to take down speech that the Constitution protects. Now, let's listen to the lawyer, uh, Jonathan Turley, respond to that situation that was just presented by um, Mr. Bishop. Here you had the government itself looking for citizens who should be silenced and targeted. Do we want to go back to the day when governments created those types of lists? Well, audience, if these presentations and this commentary and this proof and evidence uh, that we have gleaned from the Twitter files that researchers have been able to uncover in tens of thousands of hours of uh, Twitter feeds and and information that has been uncovered uh, through uh, Musk owning Twitter now and releasing these Twitter files, if that doesn't send a chill up your spine about how the government is becoming this policing force of the American people, of silencing people, of deplatforming them, and not just based on if they even said something that was uh, violence-oriented, violence-encouraging, uh, uh, but just have different political views, and they're being asked to be silenced by these private entities. In other words, the government is doing something that they can't do as a government entity, but in some sort of a, a backroom, hidden um, partnership with some of these private uh, entities. They are using the private entity uh, to do the dirty work that they would like to do, but they can't because we have a constitution. We cannot let our government uh, work against ourselves and our liberties. Join us next week, and we're going to continue to delve into some of these critical issues and exposure of this on this program so the American people have a better understanding of the dangers that they might be in given government overreach that's occurring um, in this administration and many times under prior administrations. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.